Thank you. Well, my clumsiness in that regard enabled me to finish my coffee, which <laughs> We turn now to Revelation 4. Now, Revelation 4 is to Revelation 5 what a setting is to a drama. In other words, it's a mistake to preach on just Revelation 4 or Revelation 5. Because Revelation 4 is to Revelation 5 what a setting is to a drama. The setting is the throne room of God, chapter 4. Chapter 5 is the drama that takes place. And so we will be looking at those two chapters, one now and one tonight with their complementary emphases. In the first address yesterday from Isaiah 6, we saw God transcendent, but the severity of his holiness is answered by his long-term redemptive historical grace in the coming of the branch from the stump. You're looking at the biblical narrative in order to find God's grace in the fulfillment of things in Christ Jesus. In the passage we looked at a few minutes ago, uh, we looked at heaven and hell, both judgment and grace for individuals. Now, in the last two sessions, we're looking at God transcendent and frankly terrifying in chapter four in the setting of the throne room of God, and then chapter five, the very heart of redemption. Let me begin by reading chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne were seven lamps were burning. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to begin with several introductory comments about Revelation 4 and 5. There is an intrinsic difficulty talking about the throne room of God. Let me come in from the side door. I have an older sister who, when she was young, with her husband, spent some time working in a tribe in Papua New Guinea. The tribe was only half a generation away from being cannibals. Um, their technology was extremely primitive. Um, 
they still used axe heads of stone and so on. They, they were just gradually in my sister's time there 45 years ago, just being introduced to metal. And uh, so from a technological point of view, they were extremely primitive. Their language had not yet been reduced to writing. So there was no book or anything like that. Now suppose, in your imagination, suppose that one of these tribals has been taken out and brought to you and your home, and you are a trained linguist. So you spend the next five years as a trained linguist getting this person to talk, and you break the language down. You hear all the sounds, you make up an alphabet for them, you analyze the language and the syntax, eventually you create a little grammar and translate the first book or two, and pretty soon you can, you can use the language as fluently as they can, and, and, and you've learned the language because this tribal has come out and taught it to you in your own home turf. Now suppose that you receive the assignment, I don't know why, this is all make-believe, you receive the assignment to go back to that tribal group without any objet d'art, without any illustrative materials, and just using their language, explain to them electricity. What will you say? Well, you fast rope down from a helicopter, which is already shattering their expectations of things, but eventually you calm them down because you're speaking their language and they recognize that, and you say, I have come to tell you about Well, you don't have a word for it yet, but we'll call it electricity. <laughs> In your Neo-Melanesian language, we'll call it electricity. Electricity is, is like a very fast spirit that runs along hard things like vines. Uh, they're not really vines. They're, they're, they're made in very, very big mud huts that we call factories. And we, we take these things that are like vines and we loop them from tree to tree. Well, actually what we do is we cut down the branches off the tree and dig a hole in the ground, put the tree... No, that's too complicated. We loop them from tree to tree and we pump in this electricity, which is something like a spirit at one end. And at the other end, it goes into your thatched roofs. You ever seen Papua New Guinea jungle houses? all with these thatched roofs and a hole in the middle for the smoke to get out, you know. It goes into the thatched roof and inside we make in, in, in other mud huts called factories little, little round things that we put up in, on the inside of your roof and the electricity goes around inside that lickety split, however you say lickety split in Neo-Melanesian. <laughs> and and, and it, 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 it glows brightly like a small sun so you could stay up late at night. Now, why you'd want to, I, I, I no TV and no books. And, but, but if you wanted to stay up late at night, you can, you can have a little sun in your roof. And it goes into other boxy things, which we make in still more mud huts called factories. And on the top of these boxy things are some round plates. And the electricity goes around that lickety split again. And this time, instead of making light, it makes heat. So you can put your pottery with water on there and boil your water without having to use a fire so you don't need smoke inside your house. We can close in all those roofs, you know, that are wide open so the smoke can get out. We don't need that anymore because you can just heat it all up inside. Um, how am I doing for explaining electricity? <laughs> so far, I've not mentioned any units of measure volts and watts and ohms and things like that. I haven't mentioned the atomic nature of matter on which, at the end of the day, electricity depends. I haven't mentioned uh, generation of power, the difference between AC and DC, storage of power. I certainly haven't talked about um, oh, diodes and the basics of electronics and transistors and, and, and then how many transistors you can put on a chip the size of your thumbnail. And I haven't explained um, uh, 
the basic mathematics you need to explain zeros and ones? Um, what's the matter with these people? Are they stupid or something? No, no, they're not stupid. If they migrate to the Western world, their kids will go to school and they'll compete with your kids and they'll do just as well as your kids will. The problem is not stupidity. It's lack of experience. They've never seen wires. They've never seen the effect of electricity in a light bulb or the top of a stove. So they don't have the categories. And that means that you're restricted to using a lot of analogies, metaphors, similes. Electricity is like a spirit, a similitude. It's, it runs along hard things like wires, like vines, because, because they don't know what wires are and, 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 and so on. You see, you, you're reduced to using metaphors and similes because they, they have no other categories. So then, the obvious question is, how shall we talk about the throne room of God? For the truth of the matter is, our experience of God is so pathetically bankrupt that we're reduced to talking about the throne room of God in similes and metaphors. Endless symbol-born language. Paul understands that when he's caught up into what he calls the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There he sees things, he says, the expression is ambiguous, which are not lawful to be uttered. He means both that he can't really do it and he's not supposed to do it. He's not allowed to do it. The point is, how, how, how would he describe what he himself has seen when we haven't seen it? We, we, we don't have the category, see? He would inevitably be reduced to more similes and metaphors. In any case, he's told by God, this one's for you, Paul. You don't pass this one on. And you can't really do it very easily in any case. They're just too inexperienced and thick. So apocalyptic literature with its tendency to use endless symbolism is peculiarly appropriate for talking about the throne room of God about realities that are beyond our limited experience of things. Do you see? I will go further and say that apocalyptic is a literary genre. You know how literary forms convey messages in different ways. There are even different kinds of poetry it's not as just poetry and prose. The way you handle poetry depends on the kind of poetry it is, you know? There was a professor called Dodd whose name was exceedingly odd. He spelt, if you please, his name with three Ds, while one is sufficient for God. <laughs> now, you've you got to understand how lyrics work. You can't stop halfway through and... And it's helpful to know the background of that and so on, you know. But it's got a nice beat to it. It's always got five lines and a certain number of feet that always work exactly the same way. Or Robert Frost, blank verse. When I see birches sway to left and right across the line of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them, but swinging doesn't bend them down to stay. Ice storms do that. Oh, that's clever. But it's different from the, the way you read a, a limerick. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Ah, oh, no, tis an ever-fixed mark that looks on stars and is never shaken. Shakespearean sonnet. You don't treat that like a limerick either or like blank verse. Or you look at a computer manual. The prose there is not exactly a, a fiction narrative. And nowadays, we have a new generation at school that don't know how to write letters because they only use emails or something more re Instagram. But on the other hand, 50 years ago, if you picked up a sheet of paper from the ground and it had an address up here and then a date, then another address, then dear sir, 
and then several paragraphs and down at the end, yours faithfully and maybe a CC and a couple of other names and so on. You, you know right away what it was. It's a, it, it's, it's a letter. And with certain forms, it, it might be a business letter and, 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 and so on. The form itself tells you how to read it. All forms of literature have their own way of making their own rhetorical appeals. Do you see? And so does a genre of literature called today apocalyptic. It has its own ways of making an appeal. You get the beginnings of apocalyptic in parts of Zechariah, parts of Daniel, parts of Ezekiel. And it was a very common style of writing from about 300 BC to about 300 AD. And there are some principles of how to interpret such literature, just as there are some principles of how to interpret limericks. And if, I, if this were a classroom, a, a, a lecture hall, then I'd be happy to tell you 18 or 20 principles for interpreting apocalyptic literature. Do you, do you see? One, one of the things that you need to know, it's going to become important in tonight's message, is that apocalyptic literature loves to mix its metaphors. It just loves to mix its metaphors. Now, in most kinds of literature, you don't do that. Or if you do do it, it's a mistake, and it just confuses the reader. But, but in apocalyptic literature, it loves mixed metaphors. Moreover, there are some symbols that are standard. A, a, a horn is always a sign of strength or of kingdom or of kingly power, and, and so on and so on. I'll mention a few things as we go along. So it's, uh, this, this vision is an apocalypse. It's, it's written in apocalyptic symbolism, and, and it's, 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 it's using a lot of metaphors and similitudes uh, and, and similes, rather, precisely because um, it's talking about transcendental things that we can't talk about any other way. I'll tell you something else. It's fun to preach these parables evangelistically, uh, the, these passages rather evangelistically. Do you know why? Because this is a generation that loves the visual. And I'm going to suggest before I'm finished that you can preach evangelistically through a lot of the book of Revelation um, to moderns, postmoderns, to millennials, to the under 30s, and they will, they will pick it up and run with it faster than older people who are still trying to figure out what all the symbols mean. Do you, do you see? But, but they're so comfortable with the visual and the symbol laden that quite frankly, I often preach evangelistically from the book of Revelation these days. Well, that part was all free. That, that, <laughs> that, that was sort of a, a cursory introduction to the book of Revelation and its literary form. We begin with the seer, John, saying after this, I think by after this he means after the communications he's given regarding the seven churches in chapters two and three. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. Well, a door standing open in heaven is standard apocalyptic literature for having access to visions from God. God discloses something. He reveals something. So in other words, this door standing open in heaven is not standing open in heaven so we can go up to it, raptured away. There may be a place for that, but this isn't it. And apocalyptic literature is so that you can see, so that you can see what's going on, see the revelation that's coming. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that presupposes you've paid attention to the first few chapters of the book. The voice that first spoke to John like a trumpet is back in chapter one. It's the voice of the exalted, glorified, resurrected Christ whose face is shining like the burnt noonday sun. And his voice had the, the piercing, compelling note of a crystal clear trumpet. He had spoken to John the seer. And now the voice that I had first heard says, come up here. So he's being invited up, this seer, in order to see visions of God. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. Now in chapter 1, verse 10, we're told on the Lord's day I was in the spirit. So he was already in the spirit, according to chapter 1, verse 10. But now apparently he's called up to some higher stance of re revelation, some higher stance of 
spiritual endowment, some especially uh, uh, sp specific uh, stance of spirit endowment. I was in the spirit and there before me, and now what does he see? Well, let me outline what he sees. Number one, he sees the centrality and indescribable majesty of the Almighty. He sees the centrality and indescribable majesty of the Almighty. I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. John does not want his persecuted readers to forget that there are thrones above thrones above thrones. And now he's looking at the ultimate throne. When you're being persecuted by Rome, you want to remember that the Roman throne is not the ultimate throne. John sees the throne of God. One of the things that makes it difficult to understand this passage is that the ancients did not use contemporary categories for precious stones. Their categories were a bit different. So because they did not employ our scientific terminology in their classification of precious stones, we've got to figure out what they meant. And our English translations sometimes offer different words. What are we told? <clears throat> it had the appearance of jasper. Probably an opal or a diamond. In those days, they didn't know how to cut diamonds symmetrically, so they weren't transparent or translucent. They were clouded over. And so this is a whitish stone, like an opal or a cloudy diamond. What the King James Version calls next a sardine is not a fish. Some of our translations have sardius because these were mined in the city of Sardis. Or some of our versions have ruby, in any case a scarlet red stone, a carnelian perhaps. An emerald like ours, probably green. A rainbow, well, it's literally an Edis from which we get the girl's name Iris. An Iris, if it's vertical, is a rainbow. If it's horizontal, it's what generates all those medieval pictures of halos. Which one this is, I don't know, I don't really care. The idea is that the whole thing is of spectacular beauty and color. The closest analogy I can think of in the Western world, it's not very good, but it's the best I can do, is the crown jewels in the Tower of London. Have some of you seen them? Yeah, if you get to London sometime, go and see the crown jewels. And when you get there, <coughs> lots of security. And these crown jewels are all in glass cases scattered around rooms. And there are two distinct pathways around these glass cases with light bearing down on the jewels. And if you take the near path where you're really close to these cases of jewels, you're supposed to keep walking. You're not supposed to stop. If you're in the outside path, you're allowed to stop and look. So I took the inside path and stopped anyway. <laughs> And pretty soon a voice says, keep walking, keep walking. And you stand there and you're, you're close to them. You're from, from here to here with sword hulks that are glistening in spectacular jewels that are past finding out in cost and refracted light with the light bearing down on them. It's not the sort of thing that makes you say, boy, I wish I could sell that and buy a few chocolate bars. I mean, it's, 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 it's not that. It's the, it's the beauty of it. And, and you, you stand there and you watch it. And the light is refracted in spectacular rain. And then you move your head a millimeter. And it all changes. Then you move it the other way. Changes again. Then you move your head back and forth. 
and you get this brilliant display of, of light. It is utterly mesmerizingly beautiful. So what are we told? At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of spectacular light displays. The iris, the rainbow, might remind you of the first rainbow recorded in Scripture and thus of God's covenant with the human race through Noah. Apocalyptic literature likes to make elusive connections to the Old Testament. I'll draw your attention to more of that later. The question is, how do you describe a God who is warmer than the hottest fire? who is purer than the driven snow, who is more magnificent than a stunning sunset, who is more entrancing than a million twinkling stars, who is more nourishing than the best of foods, who is more loving than the ideal parent, who is more awesome than all the unleashed forces of nature. How do you describe a God like that? You, you can feel the biblical writers trying to find a way. 1 Timothy 6.16, the Lord dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. How do you describe a God like that? You, you see, this is not only meant to tease our imaginations. It's to teach us that God cannot be domesticated. You can't go away and draw a picture of this and say, God's like that. Almost as good as a photograph. Every trace now of anthropomorphism has been cast off. The dazzling beauty masks God's beauty. I think for many of us, our God is simply too small. One of the things that apocalyptic literature can do is fire our imagination afresh to think about God. So John sees the centrality and indescribable majesty of the Almighty. Second, he sees the divine throne enhanced by spectacular heavenly beings. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So, there's the central throne of God and around it 24 other thrones. Subservient thrones. Derived thrones. Not competition thrones. It's not as if there's one throne and then another throne in competition. But subservient thronelets, you might almost say. And who is represented by these 24 elders? Historically, in the interpretation of this passage, there have been two answers given. This is one of the places where I'm not entirely sure. I think the second one is correct, but it won't make much difference for the thrust of the passage in any case. Let me tell you what the two are. Some argue that these elders represent the church. White raiment, after all, and crowns on their heads and rewards for overcomers. It, it sounds like the depiction of Christians in chapter 3, verse 4. They're clearly emblematic. 24 might mean 12 tribes and 12 apostles. That is the elect of God from both the Old Covenant and from the New, believers. Some see it as a reference to the 24 orders of priests. So they're king priests. And after all, Christians are described as a kingdom of priests. 
And then it depends, this view, also on a mistranslation in the King James Version of chapter 5, verse 9, where these elders around the throne say, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Chapter 5, verse 9. We'll come to that passage tonight. Now, if that translation is correct, thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, then they are the redeemed. They do represent the believers from both the Old Covenant and the New. But almost all contemporary translations render this. Instead, you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God men from every tribe or persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. I think that's correct. In other words, there's a differentiation made between those who are redeemed and those who are not. But we'll come to that tonight. With respect, in any case, I don't think that interpretation of the 24 elders is correct. I think that they represent a high order of angels. Let me tell you why. Number one, angels under various guises are common in apocalyptic literature. And they offer the prayers of God's saints to God in chapter 5, verse 8. It's what the angels do. An angel does this in chapter 8, verse 3. In chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, John addresses one of the elders as, My Lord which is not the way Christians ever address each other. But they do sometimes address angelic beings that way. More importantly yet, in chapter 14, verse 3, believers appear to be singing a new song which even the elders cannot learn, which presumably means that the elders are not amongst the Christians who are singing the new song. White clothing is regularly a garb for angels, But above all, this interpretation is supported by the vision of chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. There's a great multitude of the saved, and then in concentric circles, ranks of heavenly beings, angels, then elders, and then the four living creatures. Let me repeat that. The great masses of the redeemed, and then angels, the elders, the four living creatures, which are clearly emblematic of a high order of angels. In other words, it sounds as if they're part of the angelic crowd inside the crowd of the redeemed. And that ordering of things occurs more than once in the book of Revelation. The word elders may refer to heavenly beings as early as Isaiah 24. In any case, whoever they are, They enhance the throne. Supposing I'm at home on some Saturday morning and you find out where I live and you ring the doorbell about 7.30 in the morning. Say, hi, remember me? I'm from Missoula. I thought you might be interested in giving me breakfast. Do you have any pancakes? You know, being a Christian sort of bloke, I'd say, well, would bacon and eggs do? Come on in. Make yourself at home. The point is, I'm accessible. Now, whatever your politics, try and do that to Donald Trump. (laughs) See if you can walk up to the White House front door, ring the doorbell. Hi, I'm from Missoula. Would you give me breakfast? You're not going to get very far. You won't make it to the door for the place in the first instance. Because... The more important you are, the more flunkies you have around you. And in fact, if you're very important, even the flunkies have flunkies. So before you get to the president, you've got to get through the cabinet. Before you get through the cabinet, you've got to get through the cabinet security. And before that, you probably get to have to have some letters of recommendation. You can't get to really important people unless you have somebody to pull the strings, do you see? So this is a way of saying, how do you get to the throne room of God? Hi, God, I'm here. You see, there are strands in the New Testament that talk about the the access we have to God by the Spirit. and So, yeah, I I don't want to minimize any of that. We'll come to that in tonight's message. 
But first of all, you have to remember that around the throne are the four living creatures. We haven't got to them yet. They're terrifying enough. And thrones, 24 of them. Junior thrones, maybe, but still thrones. And around them, if you expand outward to the later vision of chapter 7, myriads of angels. This is not a God you sort of saunter up to and say, hi, I've come for breakfast. Did you know? The emphasis on all of this is the sheer transcendence of God. There are contexts in which it is important how amazingly accessible God is. But where we've made God sort of a buddy, Jesus and me along life's road together, then somewhere along the line we have to slam on the brakes and say, whoa, we're talking about God. He's surrounded by high orders of angels. You don't saunter into the presence of, he's not domesticated. He's not your bud. Now, there are complementary truths to that. We'll come to that. That's true. But our generation, it seems to me, is much more in danger of domesticating God than of making him so transcendent we can't approach him. Third, along the same line, John sees the holy separateness of the Almighty. Verses 5 and 6a. What you get here is three vignettes. First, lightning and thunder. Second, the seven lamps. And third, the sea of glass. Let's take them in their turn. Lightning and thunder. Now, I don't know how good the storms are you get here. You're in a mountainous area. They're probably pretty good. I lived for nine years in England. They have thunderstorms there and they think they're thunderstorms. They're so domesticated, they're pathetic. They're just <laughs> anemic, disgusting little things. Not even worth calling thunderstorms, but they think they're wonderful. But I was brought up in the St. Lawrence Valley in Eastern Canada. You take a look at weather maps and a lot of the weather systems of North America funnel out through the St. Lawrence Valley. I can remember sitting on our porch on a hot, hot summer day, the temperature hovering near 100 and uh, sticky and muggy, sky overhead, a hazy blue. And off to the west, there's a bit of clouds, west, southwest. And the reports are that a storm is coming. You wait for half an hour, and now over there, the sky is dark gray. Another half an hour, it's dark gray, so dark, you can't see where the horizon is, where you move from the earth to the sky. You, you can't see it. And, and you've you still got blue sky overhead, but the wind is coming up. The poplars on the property are beginning to sway back and forth. And off in that mass of gray, you, you see a little light, lighting. You can't see forks of lighting yet. You just see some light illuminating it. And you start counting the seconds. One, two, three, four. You get 27, 28. 29, boom, 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 boom. 27, uh, almost six miles. Takes about a mo uh, five seconds for, for the sound to go over one, one mile. And then it gets darker. The wind comes up. And now down in the southwest, you can see actual flashes of thunder. One, of lightning. One, two, three. You get to 15, 16, and... Quite a lot of noise now coming in when the lightning, the lightning discharges and the thunder rolls in some seconds later, maybe only four miles away. The poplars are swaying back and forth and the first drop of rain hits. Not some nice English polite drizzle, <laughs> but a drop of rain the size of a fist. Splat! <laughs> splat! 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 And you know it's coming. And then pretty soon... There's forked lightning almost everywhere in the sky, and it's overhead. And if you're really, really fortunate, you might see a, a stroke of lightning hit a tree on your property. Splat! And the tree just bursts apart as, as, as lightning takes out a poplar. Just, it's spectacularly powerful. Now that's a storm. 
and God's on the other side of it. In days before nuclear holocaust, there was no display of power more greatly known or feared than the powers of nature unleashed. And this vision says that to get to this God, you've got to get through the storm. Boy, that's not a domesticated God. In fact, so often in the Old Testament, at Sinai, for example, God discloses himself right precisely in the midst of a storm. A storm that is so terrifying that not even an animal is allowed to touch the mountain or he'll die. Do you see? Now, I know that there are other visions of God. I know that God comes to Elijah in a still small voice, but it's after, first of all, displaying himself behind the storm. Behind the storm, not in the storm. Different ways of using similar symbol-loaded descriptions to make sure that no one thinks God is domesticated. And then the seven lamps, almost certainly to be identified with the sevenfold spirit of God depiction. Now, we looked at that briefly last night. We saw that Israel is to be destroyed until there's only a stump left in the land, but a branch appears out of the stump of Jesse. And he is described for us in chapter 11, verse 1, in a depiction that anticipates the culmination of all things. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the, in the fear of the Lord. He's the spirit of God with a sevenfold ticked off list of attributes. And the spirit of God is described in that sevenfold list as settling on the Messiah, the branch that comes. But the effect of all of this is to say that between you, John, the seer, and the throne of God is not only this violent storm that you got across, but the mediation of the Holy Spirit. You, you, you see, the Holy Spirit is depicted in the New Testament as not only bringing God close, but also, if I may say it, keeping God separate. There is a sense in which God manifests himself to us now by his spirit, but that's another way of saying that's because Christ in his bodily form is not here. What does Jesus say in John's gospel? It's a good thing for you if I go away, because if I don't go away, the spirit won't come. Jesus goes away, the spirit comes. So the spirit's presence is mediating God's to us, but also reminding us that that means that Christ is not here. There's some kind of distance that's affected by the presence of the Spirit. And then there's the sea of glass. In front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Now, I'm not quite positive, but I'm pretty sure. A lot of our English translations have clear as crystal. And, and, and so people think, well, maybe this is a sea of glass. God looks down through the sea of glass. It's crystal clear. And he looks down and he, he sees everything. So it's a, it's a form of symbolism for his omniscience. He sees everything. No, 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 no. Later on, we'll discover that the four living creatures have eyeballs. <laughs> eyeballs everywhere, on their wings, under their wings, everywhere. The, the, the plenitude of eyeballs is what signals omniscience in apocalyptic literature. We'll come to them in a moment. Moreover, the sea in ancient Israel is never a sign of adventure and escape and freedom. The Brits are a seafaring people. I was brought up in Canadian literature, English and French. And the English side of Canadian literature is very British. 
So I must go down to the sea again, to the lonely sea in the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And so John Macefield. It was brought up with the, the symbolism of the sea as signaling adventure and distance and empire and all that, you know? Not in ancient Israel. They didn't have much luck with seagoing vessels. They tried it with Solomon and Hiram and managed to have a shipwreck or two. And in fact, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 57, the wicked are like the sea which churns up mud and mire. So what's the first thing we read in the book of Revelation, verses 20, chapters 21 and 22? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. The sea is a, is a symbol for what has fallen and what is broken, for what is decayed, for what is chaotic, which belongs to the old order. The new heaven and the new earth without sea is not talking about the hydrological principles. It's talking about the fact that there's no old order. The old order has passed away. Do you, do, you, do you see? There's no more sea. So what's this sea clear as crystal doing here? I think part of the problem is that when we hear clear as crystal, we think spectacularly transparent. But interestingly enough, in the ancient world, glass wasn't transparent. It just wasn't. They didn't know how to cut diamonds and their glass was pretty murky too. And the word rendered clear in a lot of our English Bibles often is rendered sparkling or, yeah, sparkling it will do, glistening. I think what is depicted here is the sea, not dead calm. It doesn't say anything about calm, but sparkling, like crystal because the ancient crystal did sparkle. It had all kinds of defects in it, bubbles and, and so on. It was not clear. It, 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 it sparkled. It, 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 it sent off waves of refracted light. And the sea was like the sea is churning away, sparkling with its, with its motion and movement and so on. So you've got, separating you from God, the great thunderstorm, the mediation of the Spirit of God, and a whole sea representing the lost order of creation until we're told in the new creation that there's no more sea. And it's sparkling to remind you of how alive and dangerous it is. Now approach this God. The holy separateness of the Almighty is what's underscored. There have been older hymns that got this well, not many contemporary ones. Here's one that was translated from the Latin. I don't know who the original author was. In the early 17th century by a scholar called John Mason. The English is old, but listen to these words. Thou wast, O God, and thou wast blessed before the world began. Of thine eternity possessed before time's hourglass ran. Thou needest none thy praise to sing, as if thy joy could fade. Couldst thou have needed anything, thou couldst have nothing made. Do you hear that? If God were the sort of being that needed to be praised, he wouldn't have been the sort of being that could have made anything in the first place. Let me repeat those lines. Thou needest none thy praise to sing, as if thy joy could fade. He's not the sort of God who gets to Thursday afternoon and says, I'm so lonely up here. I can hardly wait till they break out the guitars in Sunday worship. I need to be stroked. He, he doesn't need us. He's the God of aseity. He's the God who is independent. He wants us to, but that's for our good, not because of his psychological need. Couldst thou have needed anything, thou couldst have nothing made. Great and good God, it pleased thee thy godhood to declare. And what thy goodness did decree, thy greatness did prepare. Thou spakest, and heaven and earth appeared, and answered to thy call, as if their maker's voice they heard, which is the creature's all. To whom, Lord, should I sing but thee, the maker of my tongue? Lord, other lords would seize on me, but I to thee belong. As waters haste into the sea, and earth into its earth, so let my soul return to thee from whom it had its birth. That's a cut up on he's a great, big, wonderful God. 
The sheer transcendence of God is what's underscored. Do you see? Then we come in the fourth place to the four living creatures. They are the highest angelic beings and they are orchestrating the praise of the Almighty and reflecting the transcendent administration of the Almighty. 4, 6 to 8, 8. Let me repeat that. We come to the four living creatures. They are clearly the highest angelic beings. I'll show that in a moment. And they are occupying themselves, orchestrating the praise of the Almighty and reflecting the transcendent administration of the Almighty. In the center, we read, 6b, around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stop saying, and then you get the praise beginning to work out. Now, the depictions of these four living creatures are drawn from two Old Testament sources. The book of Revelation has only a couple of places where there's an actual line from the Old Testament that's quoted. One of them is in this chapter. We saw it last night. Holy, 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 the Trishagion from Isaiah 6. It's going to be used here. It's quoted. But although the book of Revelation does not quote many lines from the Old Testament, of all the books in the New Testament, it alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book. You can't read more than a couple of verses in any direction in the book of Revelation without picking up allusions to the Old Testament, which means the more you know your Old Testament, the more you make sense of the book of Revelation. It just alludes to it again and again and again and again and again. And in this case, all the elements of the depiction of the four living creatures come from two places. Number one, the depiction of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, which we looked at last night. The two wings, for example, to cover their faces, two to cover their faces, their, their feet, and, and two to execute uh, the speed of, of the Lord's commands. The depiction of the seraphim, it's drawn right from Isaiah 6. And the two depictions of cherubim in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. It's a cross thing. And you, you, you see, from our neat perspective, that's a bit messy. Well, what are they then? Are they seraphim or are they cherubim? Which is it? Decide. And the answer is yes. Do, 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 do you see? Because, because apocalyptic likes mixed metaphors. It picks up some symbols here and it picks up some symbols there, and mushes them all together and says... Stick that in your hermeneutical pipe and smoke it. I mean, it, you, 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 you've got to see that it's, it's the living, vital, mixed metaphors that, that, that tell us that these are high orders of angels. Whether you call them seraphim or cherubim, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't really care. I don't think John cares either. This is what he sees. And they're depicted in particularly known ways. For creatures. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a living flying eagle. The symbolic thrust is pretty straightforward, just about all interpreters agree, and I think that they're right. The administration of God conducted through this high order of angels is royal because the Lion then, as now, was understood to be the king of the beasts. It's a royal administration. It's a strong administration. There were various gods depicted as bullocks in the Old Testament times. The ox was a symbol of strength, endurance, stability. In Egypt, the, the Egyptian god that looked like a bullock was called Apis. So the administration of God's throne is royal. It is strong. Then there's a face of a man. That's supposed to indicate intelligence. Sometimes one wonders, but nevertheless, that's what it's supposed to indicate. So that the administration of God is, is royal, it's strong, it's intelligent, and the flying eagle 
it could indicate speed to execute God's command, or it could be uh, a symbol for God's watch carry. Do you remember how God says uh, to Israel in Exodus 19, you have seen how I have borne you up on eagles' wings? It's uh, bound up with the fact that certain species of eagles push their eaglets out of the nest and let them try to fly. And if they can't quite make it yet, they come down underneath and lift them up again. You've seen how I've borne you up with eagles' wings, compassion and understanding, and teaching them to fly while yet nevertheless lifting their wings. The administration of God is royal, strong, intelligent, compassionate. Yet it's messier than that. There are eyes everywhere. Inside, outside, on their wings, under their wings. Eye, eyes, try and draw this. I mean, it would look so screwball, you know. It's just impossibly ugly. I mean, who who wants eyeballs under your wings, wingtips, everywhere? But it's a pretty effective way of saying that God sees everything. It's a way of symbolizing omniscience, ceaseless vigilance, limitless intelligence. And finally, we're introduced to the worship and praise of heaven, 8b to the end of the chapter. We're told... Day and night they never stop saying. Then the Trishagion, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, and we've just been told, day and night they never stop doing it. So whenever they do it, and they're always doing it, they give thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him. So in other words, the worship of the highest order of angelic beings precipitates the worship of the 24 elders, the next order of angelic beings. And then by the time you get to chapter 7, thousands of angels and countless numbers of God's own elect people around the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their thrones before, crowns before the throne. That is, they recognize that whatever authority they have in their thrones, it's a derived authority. Here is no rebellion against God, running competition. It's a derived authority, and it's acknowledged by the fact that they lay their throne, their crowns before him. And they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the praise of the courts of heaven to God for his acts of creative power. Have you ever talked to someone about your faith in your town? drugstore. You keep pushing it and eventually they turn to you and say, look, we all have our modes of spirituality. For you, it's Jesus. For me, it's crystals. See, I've got some crystals in my bracelet here. The the vibrations are exactly in sync with my electric field. And we all have our forms of spirituality. And you're welcome to your Jesus. I'm, I'm not criticizing you for that. I just don't like it when you shove your Jesus down my throat. And if you're going to keep doing that, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be your friend if you keep shoving your Jesus down my throat. What do you say? Well, it may be that you have been a wee bit pushy and you have to back off at least a little. Maybe you need to take the bloke fishing or something. Prove that you're a friend. But sooner or later, don't you have to say something like this? You know, the one thing I can't do is back off. 
because this God made you and you owe him. And you're in desperate danger if you don't see that. So I'm telling you as a friend, you owe the God who made you and you will answer to him. And you need to be ready for him. Don't you have to say that? In other words, what establishes human responsibility? The doctrine of creation. You see, as long as you, 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 you think of spirituality as, as something that has smorgasbord characteristics, a little whippet of that and a little something of that and a puffter of something else, and you, you choose your own meal, smorgasbord of spirituality, then, then, then you're still God. You're still the one who describes everything. But if there is a God who made you, who holds you accountable, a God whom the highest order of angels exalt and praise precisely because he is the creator, a God who knows best because he made us, it changes everything. The doctrine of creation is not first and foremost centered on young earth versus old earth. It's centered on us finding ourselves accountable before God because God made us. The ground of human accountability before God and thus the beginning of the storyline that establishes why the fall is so awful. It's rebelling against the God who made us, the God whom we, to whom we owe everything. And thus the storyline that moves all the way to the cross that redeems us all the way to the end. The God who comes and wraps up all things in space-time history and leads us to the new heaven and the new earth. All of it, all of it is grounded in the first instance in creation. And John understands that. We're not autonomous beings who can flip our noses at God and Sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. No. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they were created. By your will they have their being. That is your continued existence before God, my friend with a fishing pole is because of God's patience with you. Jonathan Edwards had it right. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God. He holds us, as it were, over the pit of death and hell itself. And if he says, as he has been known to say, you fool, tonight your soul shall be required of you. You are damned. You are worthy for you made all things and uphold all things by your powerful word. You owe him. This is the transcendent God whom we must worship with heart and soul and mind and strength. And how can that ever be? except for what takes place in this setting in the next chapter. Let us pray. My God, how wonderful thou art. Thy majesty, how bright, how beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thine awful wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. Thy justice is the gladdest thing creation can behold. Thy tenderness so meek it wins the guilty to be bold. Yet more than all and evermore shall we thy creatures bless, most worshipful of attributes, thine awful holiness. 
Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. No earthly father loves like thee, no mother half so mild, bears and forbears, as thou hast done with me, thy sinful child. O little heart of mine, shall pain or sorrow make thee moan when all this God is all for thee, a father all I know. Open our eyes, we beg of you, Lord God, to see and in seeing to worship and trust for Jesus' sake. Amen.